Well, we are once again in our uh, study of Genesis chapter 1 to 11. And I, I just want to remind us that I entitled this series sort of the foundations of the faith. And, and I realized that as we get into the details of each individual story, um, and I'm going to switch microphones. As we get into the, 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 the details of the individual stories and accounts in Genesis, that we can lose that bigger picture that this is about laying a foundation. And today, we're going to be laying a foundation, uh, particularly about who God is, His character. Uh, particularly looking at God as a holy and just God who judges sin, as we look at the flood, but a God who is also wholly merciful, meaning W-H-O-L-O-Y, that He is full of mercy and grace. And we see that here, both His justice and His mercy. Kissing, as the psalmist says. Um, these are foundational truths about who God is. And if we get either one of those things wrong, we miss who God is. We don't grasp it. And so that's our goal today. So we're going to be reading Genesis chapter 7, verses 6 to 24. This is the account of the flood. Uh, we've kind of built up to this point. We've looked at Noah. We've looked at the generation surrounding Noah. We've looked at how evil has been in the world, and now the Lord brings judgment. Genesis chapter 7, verses 6 to 24. Hear God's word. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of, flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and rose, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostril was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man, man, 
and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth. One hundred and fifty days. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we're confronted with your holiness and your justice and your wrath. And it's overwhelming. So, Lord, as we consider this, show us also your mercy. Thank you for your word. Help us to understand it. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always found it a little bit odd um, that in our nurseries and in our children's infants' bedrooms that we often put those cute pictures of the ark. You know, the ones like the sort of cartoony pictures of the ark bobbing on a sea and, you know, the the smile on the rainbow and the the little giraffe's head sticking out the top and everybody's happy and hunky-dory. and um, How different is this story than that? It's radically different. (laughs) This isn't some little, you know, cute story of, uh, who was that author, that that story about the Dr. Doolittle and all his animals and his entourage? This is not Dr. Doolittle. This is a story of judgment. It's a story of overwhelming judgment. A judgment that um, it's hard to get our minds even around it. There's nothing warm and fuzzy in the flood flood account. In fact, it's a horrifically terrifying account. And it's an account that we need to reckon with if we're going to understand who God is and what he is about. Now, this is an account of the Lord's tender mercy in the midst of righteous judgment. There is mercy. We, we will see that in just a moment. But we have to deal with this judgment. It is a story about how he prevails over evil and at the same time prevails over the flood to save Noah and his family. But it's a story of terrifying and horrific judgment. But it is a story about the Lord prevailing. The Lord prevails. His justice prevails and his mercy prevails. And I want to think about this for a minute because if by justice, I think we get it. We want justice to prevail, right? We'll look at this. There's a longing in us that wants justice to prevail, that likes the idea of justice, except when it's applied to us. And there is a reality that we all want mercy to prevail. We want mercy, right? That's something good. And yet at the same time, we don't want mercy for everybody. There's people we don't want mercy for. And so we have to wrestle with this 
this idea we have to reckon with. God is a God who prevails both in justice and in mercy. In both of those things. Do we really want justice? Do we really want mercy for the wicked? We need to reckon. But friends, this is who our God is. The Lord who prevails in justice and mercy. And this ought to cause us to tremble. To be a little bit weak in the knees. But it also ought to cause us to rejoice. The Lord prevails. And that's the best news there ever was. The Lord prevails. And we'll look at this in two ways. First, the justice of God prevails and the mercy of God prevails. How simple is that? The justice of God prevails and the mercy of God prevails. So first, the justice of God prevails. In his classic work, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, he has a chapter entitled, The Trauma of Holiness. I'm not going to go into the details of the chapter. I'll let you read the book. But I thought that's a great title for a chapter because there is trauma associated with holiness. And we see that here in the text, the trauma of holiness. And in this chapter, Sproul explores what it's like for us to encounter a holy God, what it means for us to encounter a holy God, because there is no one like him. He is perfectly righteous. There is no defilement of sin, no pollution of evil in any way in him. In fact, He cannot endure the presence of evil, and he will judge it. This is what it means that God is holy, and to be confronted with a holy God is no little thing. It's not a small thing. The world in Noah's day was being confronted with God's holiness. Last week we read that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord saw it and he said, My spirit will not abide with man forever. And later he said to Noah, I will blot out man. I will blot him out. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through him. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And in that he instructed Noah to build an ark. Now, this is a distant story, right? This is a story so far distant uh, that, you know, this is beyond our sort of modern historical minds. This goes way back into the very earliest parts of humanity. And because of that distance, I think it's difficult for us to grasp the severity of what's going on in the text. So so we can read about it, but it feels sort of separate from us. Not part of our history, but part of some history of some people somewhere, but not us. So I want to help us with this. I want us to imagine for just a moment what it was like for Noah. What What it would mean to be Noah and his family as they entered into the ark and as the rains started to come. Just take a minute thinking about this. The text tells us three times that they entered the ark. Did you notice that? Three times in the text. Three sections distinct. Verses 1 to 5, we get God's command to enter the ark and God's promise to destroy the earth. And we read that Noah was obedient to all that God commanded him. Then in verses 6 to 10, again, 
We're told that Noah entered the ark, but here the focus is on Noah's obedience and entering the ark. And then we get to hear the start of the rains. Then a third time, in verses 11 to 16, we draw back, sort of getting from the narrator's, narrator's perspective, we draw back and we get a description of the beginning of the rains, Noah's obedience, and God's work in shutting the ark and the floods coming. Three times the Lord gives account of Noah entering the ark. Gives us a little bit of a different facet and picture of what's going on. Now, that should be a little bit of an indicator that something very big is going on because in Scripture, when there are threes, that's, a, that's usually significant. It often uses, generally, Hebrew writers use repetition. Um, even, even in the Aramaic, Jesus would use repetition. When he wanted to say something very important, what would he say? He would say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Uh, repetition is important, but when it's three times, we ought to take special notice. And so when Scripture calls God holy, he says it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Here, I think we get something similar. Not only is Noah's faithfulness to the max, holiness third time, so if we think about three times, three times is usually the thing to the nth degree, the maximum, right? So if seven is the this sort of number of perfection in Scripture, three is the maximum, the great, the, the, the sort of superlative, if you will. And so here, we're seeing not only... Noah's faithfulness to the max, that he obeyed all that the Lord had done and that he went into the ark and did exactly what the Lord had said. But God's judgment of bringing the flood is to the max. Three times the Lord is coming to judge and bring waters. As sure as the rising sun, the rains will come. The other repetition that we see is after the the door shuts and the family has entered the ark, we see another repetition. But it must have, and I want to get to that in just a second, but I want to stop for just a second and think about what it was like for Noah and his family in this moment. They're, They're in the ark and the rain has come, seven days, the rain comes, They're sitting in the ark. The Lord shuts the door. The waters open up. So the the water is, in a sense, seeping up on the earth. The waves are crashing in from the seas, and the rain is coming from the skies. What was it like to be Noah and his family? What was it like to know that You know, remember, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 6, it said, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that that there was this expansion of humanity across the globe, especially in this region, that there was all these people everywhere. Presumably, they didn't live in some isolated spot all alone where they didn't know anybody, but in fact, they lived in a town, in a city, where there was life and civilization, and here they were in the midst of all of that, and the waters are rising, and they're shut up in the ark, and the waters are coming, and all those people are crying out. I will never forget the pictures of Katrina. Right? I had a friend in, 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 in Pittsburgh who lived in New Orleans at the time and who 
was helping out with the rescue efforts. It forever changed her life. It shaped her. Those pictures are imprinted on her mind. She saw and heard and all the terror of what happened in the flood in New Orleans. What was it like to be Noah? To be his family? R.C. Sproul's title to that chapter, The Trauma of the Holiness of God, was on display. It was traumatic. Is this actually happening? This is happening. This is really coming to pass. As they counted heads, Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives, as they counted the numbers two by two and the, the numbers of the clean animals by seven, and as they counted and they walked up the gangplank, and as the rains came and the waters of the earth started to seep and rise, as their friends and extended family watched as the door was shut, you can't help but wonder the terror and horror of the situation. The earth was full of people. And the text repeats not just that they entered the ark three times, but it repeats a couple other things. I want us to look at verses. So after the door is shut, I want us to look at verse 17 and following. Verse 17 here is like a, it's like a summary statement. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The flood waters came. But then we have three repetitions. Notice them. Verse 18. It's like a chant. Verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Look at verse 19. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Look at verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits. 15 cubits is about 18 inches. It's about a foot and a half. So just multiply. How high? Prevailed. But there's another cycle of thirds. Look at verse 21. The waters prevail, but look at verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Look at verse 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Look at verse 23. He blotted out every living creature, every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. All flesh died. Everything on earth died. Everything with the breath of life died. It was blotted out. And notice that in verse 22, it's like a, uh, I mean, in verse 23, it's like a, a almost, uh, an, so if three is sort of the maximum, on the third one, they repeat it twice to emphasize how significant. He blotted it out. He blotted them out. All life died. Everything died. God blotted them all out. He blotted 
them out. This is the trauma of holiness. And friends, we have to reckon with this. We have to reckon with it. Some of you will be sitting here saying, this is what I don't believe. This is what I don't like about the Bible. God is a God of wrath and anger, and he's all petulant, and he just hates people, and he just wants to kill them and torture them, and this is what the Bible says about God. Some of you will sit there and think that. You'll, you'll be reading this account, and you will be angry at God and his injustice in your mind. That's how you will, you will handle this. Some of you will handle this like, woe is me. God is a God to be feared. I'm not going to approach this God. I'm going to, I'm going to hide in whatever crevice and rock I can find other than him. I'm going to run away. I'm going to ignore God. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. I'm just going to run away. So instead of shaking your fist, you'll just, like, like a dog putting the tail between its legs, you'll just run. Those are two of the options that we have. You, you, you have come to this place where you wonder, who is this God? What does it mean for God to be holy and just? I think all of us struggle with this to a degree. And I think sometimes as we read the Bible, even as Christians, we come to the Old Testament and we kind of dismiss it. I said this last week, we kind of push it aside. But there's a text, and maybe you've had this experience, and I shared this at at community group the other night. Sometimes you run across a text in the Bible that disturbs you. Maybe it's this one today. You've come into, you've come into the presence of a holy God here in the, in the flood and you're disturbed. I, I don't know if you've had that experience, but I have. And there's one passage in particular that I really, when I came to it, it undid me. I just, I couldn't get my mind around it. And it's a story in the book of Acts. You'll remember that the early church... Uh, one of the beauties of the early church descriptions that we get in the book of Acts is that they had all things in common, that they shared what they had. In fact, they, had, they set up a, an early deacon's ministry where the, 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 the deacons would be, these helpers would come alongside the apostles in distributing the various gifts to the poor. And there was a lot of poverty amongst the early Christian church. And so this was an opportunity to care for the, the widows and the orphans. And so everybody was doing this. They were bringing everything together. And then there's an account in the book of Acts, right following this sort of beautiful picture of how they had all things in common, about a, a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira. Anybody remember Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira did a good thing. They sold their property. They were going to give the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to the poor. The only problem was they sold the property and they thought, well, I'll pretend I'm selling this property. I'll, I'll take the, the proceeds, but I'll keep a portion secretly for ourselves. And he and his wife were complicit in this. They shared this, this thought. Well, we'll keep a little bit out for ourselves, but we'll give the rest to the apostles. Peter confronts them. Divinely instructed or told by, by God or however he came to know about it, he said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. What happens to Ananias and Sapphira? They die. Right there. Actually, confronted Ananias. Ananias dies. Confront Sapphira. Sapphira dies. 
This is the stuff of the Old Testament. Lord, this is the early church. They're coming together. They're new. You know, everything is new. And, and Lord, why are you bringing such judgment? It, you know, he did give some. It undid me. It undoes me to think this is the nature of holiness, that those sins, those private sins, those little sins, those things that we don't even think about deserve the wrath and curse of God. We just do them habitually. Yeah, God will overlook this. Maybe I can hide it from God. God is a holy God. Suddenly and tangibly, Ananias and Sapphira were confronted with the God of heaven and earth, the thrice holy God, the one who made all things, who by his breath gave life and who in his judgments brings life to an end. Friends, death is traumatic enough. But to be confronted with the reality that death, any death, is the hand of justice meted out by a holy God is a terrifying thing. To be Noah and his family in the ark as the waters rise could not be anything else but awful. But to be all those surrounding the ark way worse we must come to terms with this and I think we can begin to grasp the justice and judgment of God when we consider the injustice that we ourselves experience in this world there's no lack of crying out for justice right none there's that we see it all the time justice for the unborn it's a good thing we call out for justice justice for the poor justice Regarding race, racial injustices, justice for the oppressed, justice for the, the abused, all these things we recognize as needing justice, right? We look at it and we say there's injustice in the world and we cry out. And these are only the big things of the world. We all experience injustice in different ways. Kids, let me ask you kids, is there anything worse than getting blamed and punished for something one of your siblings does. So frustrating. It's not fair. That's our cry of injustice. It's not fair. I always tell my kids, well, life's not fair. <laughs> the reality is that it is fair in as far as the Lord of judgment and justice is coming and will bring judgment. Parents, you pour yourselves out to your children day in and day out. And then they just lack gratitude. Right? You, you do things day in and day out, and you make this beautiful meal, right? And then the kids just shove it in their face and then run off. And there's a huge mess on the table. It's not fair! Friends, have you ever had a friend take advantage of you? You, know, you? you want to be caring to that friend, and so you are, but all of a sudden it seems like every single day they're asking something more. They never ask what you, they can do for you, but you just get frustrated and bitter. You've experienced that. Pastors and leaders abuse those under them. Coworkers cheat. Neighbors 
move the property stakes. Or don't take responsibility for the tree that's in their yard that's shedding all those branches. Insurance companies never pay out what they say. Have you ever had an insurance company pay out what it says? Husbands and wives struggle to be faithful. And courts, the place of justice, right? Weighing in the, the balances. Who does it favor? The rich? The powerful? Judge unfairly all the time around us. Favoritism, cronyism are the name of the game. We all cry for justice. That's, that's, that's inbred in us. But what we miss, what we fail to see, is that we are the cheaters, that we are the ones who steal, that we abuse, that we show partiality and favoritism, that we take advantage, that we withhold for ourselves the things that are best. That we are unfaithful. That we try to get away with whatever we can. We want justice. We want justice done, just not to us. Just not to us. And here's the thing, the justice of God will prevail over you. I'm sure the generation in Noah's day thought that they had prevailed. Remember Lamech? Lamech, I have brought revenge uh, you know, sevenfold to what my father did. He had his own form of justice. Who could touch him? He was a man of, of power. Friends, to be confronted with a holy God who says the guilty will not go unpunished is a traumatic thing. It is. It ought to cause us to pause and think, who am I that the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, who is perfect in all his ways, without blemish, who am I that he bears with my sin, my rebelliousness, my wickedness? And it ought to cause us to tremble. This reality, the justice of God prevails. No one his family looked on from the ark, and they were inevitably shaken to the core. Who is a God like this? Have you reckoned with the holiness and justice of God? He will judge the wicked for their sin. Justice will prevail. You cry for fairness, it will come. But this is not all. This isn't the end of the story here. Not at all. Not in any way, shape, or form. God is merciful and his mercy prevails. I realize that I'm running out of time and you might think, wow, he spent a long time on God's justice. Uh, I put in my notes, I said, I spent about 80% of the sermon on God's judgment. It was planned. And why did I do that? Well, because I think that's what the text is about. Fundamentally, here we have a picture of God's judgment. The majority of it is God's judgment. We ought not to miss the mercy. The text puts great emphasis on the flood. But I want to say something to this, because I don't think it's a relative measure, meaning I don't think I'd spend 80% on justice because God's mercy is only 20%. Right? I think sometimes we think that way about God. God is mostly judgy. Right? That's a popular word. He's mostly judgy. And he's a little bit merciful. And then we relate to God that way. We act as if, oh, 
God, I know you have a little bit of mercy. Can you give me a little bit of mercy? God, I know that I, I deserve all your wrath and judgment. Do you have just a little bit of spare change? Something small to give me? No. God is wholly just, fully fully righteous and holy in all his ways, but he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love and mercy to a thousand generations. He is overflowing with it. And so while this text emphasizes the one, don't miss this reality. God's mercy is just as large. This is who he is. He is a God of mercy. And we see this mercy painted Throughout the text, Noah and his family, two of every kind of animal, the seven of the clean animals. We see how God cares for them. He, he instructs Noah how to build the ark. He gives them all that they need. He ushers them into the ark. He closes the ark up behind them. He preserves them there in the ark. Did you notice there's a creation theme running through the text? A lot of the language of Genesis 1 sort of flows out of the text. Um, just, to, just to give you guys a little bit of a picture, look at verse 13. Notice the way the animals are described in verse 13. It says here, in this order, um, verse 13 says, On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, with them entered the ark. Then in verse 14, And then every beast according to its kind... And then all the livestock, according to their kinds. Then every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, according to its kind. And every bird, according to its kind. Every winged creature. It's not a perfect one-to-one parallel, but it is very similar to the language of of the sixth day of creation. When God made man, God first made the animals. But notice here it's the reversed order. First we hear about man being shut up in the ark. Noah and his family. And then every beast according to its kind, and the livestock, and the creeping things that creep along the ground, and then the birds of the air, sort of the last. Even though in the, in the order of creation, the birds were created, and then the, then the animals of the, of the land, and then the livestock, and then mankind. It's kind of interesting. Is that just a novelty? I'm just pointing out a novelty. Yeah, look, there's a novelty. No, I think there's purpose in this. Those echoes of Genesis 1 are to draw our attention back to the creation account. We're to be thinking, what's going on here? God is starting over. He's, he's going in reverse, if you will. He's preserving these few creatures and these few peoples, and he's shutting them up in the ark. But then he is bringing the waters back over the earth. All that he had done earlier in separating the waters, we'll notice here, we'll look again, and uh, a little farther down, it says, uh, they went into the ark, uh, but, um, no, and sorry, in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst, burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth. Notice there that, sort of the water was coming back together. It's this picture. You remember in Genesis 1 that the Spirit hovered over the waters before God created. And here it's as if all those waters that had been separated out were now coming back over the earth. They were cleansing the earth and making it new once again. But there's a difference as well. Noah is not Adam. He's a son of Adam. And Noah is not alone, not even just his wife, but his children. 
And not just that, but God is not going to create everything new, but He's even preserving the animals that they might reproduce after they get off the ark. There's this real difference. What we're seeing here is God's mercy. God's mercy here. He's saying, I'm not going to blot out everything. I am going to cleanse. I'm going to wipe new. I'm going to bring my judgment. But I'm going to show you my mercy by preserving mankind because I promise to do that. Because I'm a faithful God to my promises. The seed of the woman. It's not, it's not indifferent that Noah and his children come onto this ark. It's like a hint saying, look. Yes, my judgment is going to come. The waters are going to come. It's going to be a traumatic event and everything is going to be destroyed. But my promise is going to be fulfilled. My mercy is coming. We see it in this sort of recreation theme with a twist. But not only that, we see another piece of God's mercy. God shut them up in the ark. He shut the door behind them. Was it because they couldn't figure a way to get a pulley system to bring the door to shut or however they were, however they were made? No, I don't think that was it. I think God shut the door to the ark as, as a sign of his mercy. I am with you. I am going to save you. I'm going to wrap you in my arms and carry you like a hen with her chicks, like an eagle with its young under her wings. I'm going to carry you through the waters. You will be preserved. I am the one who's doing this and no other. I'm a God who is full of mercy. The last thing that we see here in terms of mercy is at the end, we had that terrible, traumatic reality that God blots out Every living creature that was on the face of the ground, man, animals, creeping things, birds, they were all blotted out from the earth. But then these words, only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed, but only for 150 days. His judgments are sure, but so are his mercies. So are his mercies. Friends, as we consider this is a heavy text, I feel like I've been in these heavy texts week in and week out over the past, over the past month or so. And to be honest, I came today a little bit shaky with my knees just a little bit weak. I didn't want to get up. I told Aaron this morning as I was preparing, I was just, I don't know if I have it today. Like I don't, I don't know if I have it. And I realized that as I was coming into this place and I was standing before the living God, I was thinking about my own unworthiness and how much I don't deserve to be up here talking about God's judgment because my, His judgment is it's for me too. Then I was reminded of this reality. As traumatic an event as this is, as overwhelming as this is, with God's judgment coming, the floodwaters coming, all of humanity being erased, and, and just this one little remnant being saved, as overwhelming and off-filled as this is, it does not compare to the cross. It just doesn't. Here on the cross, the judgment of God is poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, 
The judgment that God poured out on all humanity was deserved. It, it was because of their sin. They had done what was wrong in the eyes of God. But here at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, who is holy, 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 who was there at creation song when he created all things by the power of his word, the one who himself is righteous in all his ways, suffered the wrath and curse of God. There was no greater picture of traumatic justice as was poured out right then and there. The Lord of glory who cried out to his Father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you want to know why? Because of his abundant mercy to you and to me. Just as the judgment in the, in the, in the Noahic days was nothing compared to the judgment poured out on the cross. The mercy that we see in Noah, the preservation of his line and that, that glorious seed that was being carried doesn't compare to the mercy that comes at the cross of Jesus Christ. That because he was crucified, we have life. You and I. We deserve death, and yet we have life. Who is a God like this? Who does not count our sins against us, but blots out not us, but our iniquity. And takes our sin as far as the east is from the west, and pulls it away, and says to us, You are my beloved Son, and in you I am well pleased. As I look at my own life and I consider the justice I deserve and I look to the cross of Jesus Christ, I tremble in awe at the mercy that is in him. Friends, we're saying earlier about hiding ourselves away in the rock that is Jesus. He is our refuge, our fortress, our strength. Have you hid yourself away in him? Friends, if you're here this morning and you're still thinking, I don't know, Rob, God seems a little angry. It's like, yep, he's angry because sin is that bad and your sin is that bad. Don't miss the good news that this is a God who not only is full of wrath, but he is a God who is full of love. Put your trust in him. Hide yourself in him. He is faithful to preserve you to the end. Let's pray.